as we dive into the scriptures this morning, not necessarily as a part of this teaching, but uh, just to share a little bit of my heart. Um, when God uh, gave me a sense of being called to Seattle uh, almost five years ago this fall, four years will be uh, in July that I've actually lived here, which is awesome. Um, and, and being a part of church planting, our heart is to magnify and multiply the gospel. And you multiply the gospel by multiplying disciples. And we'll talk more tomorrow about what it means to uh, get involved in the life of the church and what God is doing in the church and in the world that is. Uh, but my vision as I was moving to Seattle to be a part of church planting and uh, inevitably God brought us to the Hallows Church uh, was to see a day where more of this was happening uh, because I have a lot of years and uh, experience of leading worship, but I want to be uh, intentional to help to invest and develop and raise up other worship leaders so that as God might multiply our church uh, as he has, uh, we didn't plan for that, but God has multiplied our church in the different uh, directions and expressions as he has. I would love for there to be a day uh, that there's so many who are equipped and empowered and are serving uh, in our worship ministry teams that uh, maybe somebody uh, calls in sick one Sunday morning and I've got to step in, but it's been so long uh, since I've like actually like led a worship gathering. And don't worry, Andrew, and uh, we're a long way from getting there. But uh, it's been so long since I've led that when I step in, people are like, what? Where did that come from? And it's like, yeah, I actually used to do this all the time for a living. Uh, but to see so many disciples being raised up and developed and deployed into ministry uh, that I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm on the bench. I'm like the backup guy. I would love to be the backup guy. That would be so awesome because God is growing our church and multiplying disciples in the life of our church. So thank you, uh, team, for leading out this morning. And uh, we've got other disciples who will be joining us in leading out in worship this weekend as he's uh, brought so many to our church and so many are here this weekend. So I'm excited about that as well. Uh, as we continue in our time in the Word this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 15. As we talk about what it looks like and what it means to foster intimacy. Uh, you know, as we are in the process of uh, discipling one another, we believe in mutual discipleship. Uh, but as we are also making disciples, seeing people come to faith in Christ, trust in the gospel and follow Jesus, uh, we've got to be intentional to emphasize uh, fostering intimacy with Jesus and that it doesn't just happen. <laughs> if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you know intimacy doesn't just happen. Uh, we have to be intentional to pursue Jesus and to cultivate and to foster intimacy in our lives and in our walk with him. Intimacy uh, is important to relationship, to relationship in general. Uh, knowing who we are and whose we are, as we studied last night from Ephesians 1, they are both pivotal as we foster intimacy in our relationship with Jesus. Identity, knowing who we are and our position or our standing with God in Christ, is in, it encourages us to press more into him. And the more we press in, the more I, our identity is then solidified in our hearts and our minds. It's this, it's this reciprocal effect. Uh, I, I receive truth of who I am in Christ. I press in to know him more, and then I am reaffirmed and shored up in that identity, which causes me to press in more, which then causes me to believe more of who he says that I am, even as we have been singing already this weekend. I think this is why when we go through seasons where we're not so intentional, to foster intimacy with Christ, or to be honest in my own heart when I just neglect my relationship with him, there's a sense in which we begin to lack confidence and struggle with embracing who we are in Christ. And it's because we're not spending time with him, because we're not fostering intimacy. 
I think we most often think of the word intimacy in the context of sexuality, but it's actually defined as close familiarity or friendship, basically closeness. You think about those that you're closest to and the security that comes uh, from the level of intimacy you experience in that relationship. There's a greater level of freedom and confidence to, to speak truth and to also receive truth from those who you are most intimate with. Uh, take my role in the life of the church as a staff elder. Uh, I, as such, I have uh, the opportunity and the privilege to lead out. Uh, when I stepped in a little bit over two years ago, there was a little bit of timidity uh, in how quickly or how, uh, I guess, boldly I would lead out. But that was because I was not only getting to know the Hallows Church, I was getting to know Pastor Andrew. I was getting to know other leaders. And so as I pressed into relationship with them, with our staff team, uh, and that intimacy was fostered, we knew we grew in our, in our knowledge of one another. I grew in my knowledge of what God had been doing and is doing in the life of the Hellish Church, then it gave me a sense of confidence to lead out in the role that I was already in. As I pressed into intimacy and relationship and got to know the church and got to know leaders, then it empowered me with a sense of confidence to really be who I already was. Well, the same is true in our walk with Jesus. Everything we explored last night about our identity is foundational to living the Christian life. But without fostering intimacy with Jesus, we will always lack the confidence to live in light of those realities. God has already declared in his word, this is who you are. As we press into fostering intimacy, we begin to believe that because we're spending time with the one who has already declared these things about us. But if we don't press in and cultivate and foster intimacy in our life, these are just things that are, that are said about us, but we don't have any, any context to really know that they are true. But when we foster intimacy, we grow in that confidence. So as we look at the passage this morning, I want, I want to walk through this in the way that I would uh, help a new disciple process what it looks like to foster intimacy with Christ, which basically means we're not going to jump in verse 1 and go all the way through verse 11. Uh, I'm going to kind of move the, the passage around a little bit so that we can lay a foundation of some pivotal truths as we learn and look at what it means uh, to foster intimacy, which means the how-tos will come last, all right? Uh, there are verses earlier in the passage, but we're going to deal with the how-tos uh, at the end. Uh, we always want to get to the how-tos. Like, like the, I, I believe all the stuff that, you know, who God is and who Jesus is, but just tell me what I need to do in order to foster intimacy. Well, we need to focus on the truth of who God is and what he has done in Christ before we move into the realm of how-tos. Uh, if we get to the how-to without the foundation, uh, the foundational truth, then I think we also can easily slide into the realm of legalism. And that is uh, life taking, it's life sucking, and it's not life giving. But we want to build upon the firm foundation of Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, as we dive in this morning, the first thing I want to show you is uh, God's interest. God's interest from verses 1 through 3. Uh, namely this, first and foremost, God is actively involved in our spiritual growth and progress. It's not all up to you. It's not up to you at all, actually. God is actively involved in our spiritual growth and progress. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 in John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
already speaking to his disciples, therefore speaking to those of us who are trusting in the gospel, who are in Christ, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So Jesus just begins uh, not by saying anything about us, uh, but all starting with who he is in relation to the Father and how the Father is actively involved in our spiritual growth and progress. Jesus says he is the true vine, not just a vine, not just the vine, not just another vine. He is the true vine. So why does Jesus go there? I believe it's because he wants to contrast himself from Israel and the role of the nation of Israel as God's people, because all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is, is referred to as God's vineyard. They are the vine that, that God wants to, to see glorious fruit come from. And I think that, that fruit, in, an, in essence, is them fulfilling his plan and his identity for them to be a kingdom of priests. God's design for Israel was that they would represent him before the nations and that all the nations would come into relationship with him through them. But unfortunately, time and time again, as we read through the scriptures, we see that Israel is unfaithful. They fail to live out that plan and that identity. And so Jesus comes and says, not that the church is the new Israel, but that he is the new Israel. He is the true vine. He is the one who is faithful even when we are faithless. And so Jesus establishes first and foremost, I am the true vine. And then he says, my father is the vine dresser. Vine dresser is a gardener. And what is the role of a gardener? I haven't done much tending to uh, vines or vineyards, but from what I've read and from what I've heard, uh, especially just knowing a little bit about gardener, I, gardening, I once owned a house or I own a house back in Alabama. One of my favorite things to do was yard work. I know there's just something about getting out there and uh, subduing the earth. Uh, but as you, as you tend, yeah, that's, that's like cutting the grass, you know, weeding, weeding out stuff. Uh, but what the gardener does in the role in, re- in relation to the vine, the vine dresser, the gardener, what he is doing is watching over the vine. He is carefully examining. He's looking after it. He's, he's doing what's necessary to allow that vine to flourish, to be fruitful in the direction that he wants it to be. Now, what is the fruit that God is expecting? I believe it is the Imago Dei. From the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, we see that God began by creating man in his image. And the mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve from the very beginning was to be fruitful and to multiply. Yes, that meant to procreate, but that was also before the fall. So that as they were fruitful and they multiplied, his intention was that his image, the Imago Dei in mankind, would fill the earth. But we know what happens in Genesis 3. The serpent comes, deceives Adam and Eve. Adam was with Eve when she was listening and conversating with the serpent. Uh, And they, they ate of the fruit. And in came sin. And the image of God, the Imago Dei, was marred, needing to be redeemed, needing to be rescued, needing to be restored. Well, again, his intention, he set in motion a plan of redemption, and he wanted to use Israel to bring that about, but because of their faithlessness. And it wasn't that Israel was plan A, Jesus was always plan A, all right? 
Don't ever think Jesus was the backup plan. Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. But Jesus came to show himself faithful and strong to restore the Imago Dei, the image of God in humanity through the work of the cross. So what is the fruit that God is desiring? I believe it is to see the restored Imago Dei manifested throughout the earth. This is why when Jesus uh, is resurrected and is about to ascend and go back to the Father, he gives us the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Go and proclaim this good news of the gospel so that people from every race, tribe, language, nation, tongue will hear this message and respond. And in doing so, the Imago Dei would be restored, redeemed, rescued all over the world, therefore seeing the fruit that God wanted from the very beginning. So how do we, how do we look at that for us? If we're to bear fruit, how do we help a, a new disciple understand what it means to bear fruit? Well, first and foremost, it, it happens as we trust in the gospel. So we trust in what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection, making it possible for us to walk in newness of life. I think the fruit that God is looking for is the character and likeness of Jesus, the character and likeness of Christ in the hearts of those who are trusting in the gospel, and also the influence that comes from that, which I believe will result in more people hearing and trusting in the gospel and following Jesus. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, and he, he begins to talk about what he's doing, he, he is working the vine in order that it might be fruitful. I think the fruit that he is trying to cultivate from the vine is more and more disciples of Christ who are making disciples of Christ. Jesus says, some of the father's activity is that branches that don't bear fruit are taken away. And we'll dive into what that might look like in a few moments later in the passage. But he also says that branches that do bear fruit, they're pruned. Why? So that they can bear more fruit. So the father is very actively involved in our spiritual growth and progress, bringing about the circumstances and the situations in our life that will bring about the most fruitfulness. There are a lot of good things in our life as disciples, but those good things aren't necessarily always what's best. So sometimes that pruning is, is providential. It's circumstantial. God might be removing things from our life that might be good, that might be for our enjoyment, but they're not necessarily pressing us into more and more Christ-likeness. So he might prune or take those things away. But he also prunes by way of discipline because the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. And so even when we're walking in the other direction from him, he might prune some things from our life to bring us back to him so that we are bearing more fruit. And Jesus speaks a very interesting word here. He says, already you disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What is that word? I think it's the word of the gospel. Jesus has been instructing his disciples in the ways and the means of the kingdom. And he says that my father is the vine dresser. I am the vine. You, my father is the vine dresser. And what you need to understand is you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, the word of the gospel knowing that I have died for your sins. And he had not died yet. But now our understanding is that Jesus, of course, has died for our sins in our place. He's raised from the dead, empowering us, enabling us to be forgiven of our sins and walk in newness of life. We are clean because of the gospel. So again, God's interest is that first and foremost, we understand that he's actively involved in our growth and progress. Secondly, I think our fruit bearing glorifies God. Verse 8, Jesus says this, by this, my father is glorified. 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So God is after fruit, that character and life of Christ in each and every disciple who is trusting in the gospel, who is walking with Jesus. And God is glorified when we bear that fruit, when we look like Jesus, when we think like Jesus, when our priorities are the same as that of Jesus, when we are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom as Jesus did, as we are ushering people into his presence through proclaiming the gospel and leading people to trust and follow in Jesus. By this, our father is glorified. Why? Because that's what he wants to begin with. So when we're producing the fruit that he's after, he gets glory because this is what he's been working at all along. But not only is he glorified, but it is evidential that we are disciples of Jesus. Fruit bearing proves that we're followers of Jesus, that we're disciples, that we're learning, that we're growing, which if we're not bearing fruit, then that might be evidential of another thing, that we're not disciples of Jesus. Again, God is glorified when we bear fruit. And how does this happen? It's because God is glorified with and through the Son. I think one of the hallmarks of John's gospel, which is a very intimate account of uh, the gospel, uh, is that there's this oneness continually expressed from Jesus, uh, this oneness of the Father and the Son. And so God is glorified with and through the Son, but how is God glorified when we bear fruit? It's because we bear fruit when we abide in the Son. And I think there's a, a, a silent but ever-present third person of the Trinity that's also here in this passage. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned in these 11 verses, but I believe he is ever-present and working. Why? Because when a, when a branch abides in the vine, and I'll define abide here in just a moment, but when a branch abides in the vine, the life force is able to flow. You think about uh, the branches that are coming off of a vine, the, the fruit actually grows on the branch, right? The, the, the vine is the stalk and the branches come off of it. But as long as the branches are attached to the vine, there is a, a life force that's able to flow out to the branches so that fruit might be born. Well, when we abide in Christ, when we remain in him, we're able to produce fruit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit enables us to produce the fruit the Father is at work to cultivate in and through us, which is the life and the character of Christ which I believe is why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 5.23 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he says, against these things, there is no law. The Holy Spirit is at work to produce the fruit, to, to push the fruit out of us so that we begin to, to look, to live, to think, to prioritize our life after the things of God's kingdom. So God is intimately, actively involved in our spiritual growth and progress. And I believe that's Father, Son, and Spirit. The next thing I think we need to reinforce our understanding, encourage one another in, as well as help new disciples understand, is Christ's gifts. Not only do we understand God's interest, I believe God is more interested in our spiritual growth and progress than we are, but Christ gives us gifts so that we're able to make spiritual growth and progress, so that we're able to cultivate and foster intimacy in our relationship with him. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Here, I think we see that love is our motivation to abide. Love is our motivation to abide. In verse 9, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So love is what motivates us to, to abide. It's not this, this, this attempt to earn something. We abide because we have been loved. And what is our example? The fact that the father has already loved the son. He has loved him eternally. He has loved him actively. He has loved him intensely. And as such, the son has been reciprocating that love back to the father. And what has it taken the form of? But submission and obedience. The son has loved the father and the father has loved the son. And then Jesus says, I have loved you. So the son has loved us. In light of this this love dance that's been happening and we've been invited into it, we've also been invited to abide in that love, abide in Christ, abide in who he is and what he has done. But we need to understand that love is not conditional upon our abiding, which means we don't abide in order to be loved. It's not that if I press in and I try to abide in Jesus, then I can earn more of God's affection. I can earn more love from God. We don't abide in order to be love. Rather, abiding is our response to love. That's why Jesus said that as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I've already loved you. And because of that, in light of that, I want to invite you to abide. So abiding is our response. But what does it mean to abide? John Piper says, I think the essential meaning to abide is the essential meaning of our active uh, or the act of receiving and trusting all that God is for us in Christ. Let me read that in its entirety. John Piper says, I think the essential meaning of our active abiding is the act of receiving and trusting all that God is for us in Christ. Which takes us back to Ephesians 1 as we studied that passage last night. We've got to know what God has done for us, who he has declared us to be, what it means, what our identity is. And to actively abide in Christ is to actively embrace that, to hold on to it, to chase after that being realized in our life. That's what it means to abide. It's not just I'm going to stay in this place. In our relationship with Jesus Because the world, our flesh, and the devil are constantly tempting us, trying to lure us away. We have to actively work to abide. Because otherwise, we'll be swept away in the cares of this life. It's an upstream battle. So we abide as a response to being loved by God, which means we are constantly, actively receiving, which means we've got to dive into the scriptures. Receiving, we've got to be in community. Receiving, we've got to be in smaller clusters of community so that we're continuing to pour the truth into one another. We've got to continually be receiving and trusting all that God is for us in Christ. But Jesus says something else. He says, abide in my love. And then he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. So what does it mean to keep the commandments of God? It means to keep the commandments of God. (laughs) So God in his grace has has made it possible in Christ for us to, to live in such a way that we are obeying the commandments of God because Jesus has already fulfilled every one of them. 
He is our righteousness. So as we trust in him, as we follow him, as we look at the scriptures and trust in the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to cultivate submission and obedience in our life, we begin to keep the commandments of God. And through keeping his commandments, God does something amazing, something mysterious. He makes us look more and more like Jesus. And Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as, just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. As Jesus was completely, fully in step with the father. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, Jesus says over and over again, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I don't say anything that I haven't heard the father say. I don't do anything I haven't already seen the father do. Essentially, when we keep the commandments of God, we, we abide in Christ's love, beginning to manifest his life in the world that is. And we're, we're not creating ministry. We're not, we're not creating kingdom activity. We're just stepping into those things God is already doing. He's at work all around us. And as we abide in his love, we are more and more in tune with his desires, his priorities in the world that is, and we pursue them. So here's a question. Is this a ploy then to be in God's good graces? Do I strive to keep the commandments and, uh, and, and abide in Christ in order to, to be in good with God? And it is not. Again, Christ has achieved uh, a place of standing before God and that we have been redeemed, we've been rescued, we have been made righteous in him. Uh, Pastor theologian uh, D.A. Carson says, rather than obey Jesus out of a sense of obligation or fear, his his followers ought to render obedience to Jesus out of love. First John tells us that perfect love, which It's the personification of Jesus. God is love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So being found in Christ, we don't have to fear God and obey out of a sense of obligation or fear, but we respond to him by abiding because we have been loved. Our obedience is rooted in love. So again, love is our motivation to abide. But next in verse 11, I think Jesus shows us that his joy, Christ's joy, is our reward. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What are these things? These are the teachings of the kingdom, the revelation of who he is, the revelation of all there is for us as we trust in Christ, as we embrace our identity. He says, these things I have spoken to you. Why? So that your joy may be full. I want you to experience the fullness of joy. There's a, there's a place in the Psalms where, uh, where the psalmist writes, in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So these things, the way of the kingdom, these things I have instructed you, I've given to you, I've spoken to you, that you might come into my presence and sp- experience the fullness of joy in this life and in the life to come. But he says, I tell you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So what is the the joy of Christ? Uh, uh, D.A. Carson says it's his claim to be the Messiah. Jesus rejoices in being our rescue because here's the reality. No one else could do it. And he gladly, according to Philippians, the hymn that Paul writes in Philippians 2, he gladly let go of those things 
that, that, that caused him to be equal with God. He counted equality with God as a thing uh, not to be held on to, but gladly in submission to the Father, humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, and was obedient out of love was obedient to the very point of death, death on a cross. And because of that obedience, that obedience that is a response, that is in response to loving God, God raised him on the third day and has given him a name that is higher than any other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus's joy is the fact that he's able to fulfill the Father's intention by bringing about rescue and redemption and restoration of his image in the world that it is through mankind. He is the Messiah. That is his joy. And he wants us to be full of that joy to the point that we're proclaiming that message. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So we have an understanding of uh, God's interest that he is actively involved in our spiritual growth and progress, uh, that our fruit bearing brings glory to him. Christ gives us gifts in that he gives us his love as a motivation to abide in him, not fear, uh, not discipline. We don't obey or abide to, to get something, but love is motivating our abiding. And then we know that Christ's joy is also our reward. So then our callings, I, I was kind of going back and forth, like, should it be college and should it be response? So uh, our callings, uh, and you can write a slash and write response next to that, is that we must cultivate a dependence upon Christ. In light of knowing that God is interested in our spiritual growth and progress, is actively involved in it, that Christ has given gifts to, to enable us to abide we must cultivate a dependence upon Christ. This is a call upon disciples, upon branches. Now jump back up to verse four. And Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, one of the things about cultivating a dependence upon Christ as we, as we foster intimacy is to is to cultivate humility. Humility is first and foremost uh, required in order to receive and embrace the gospel, right? You've got to realize that you're in a place of need, that you can't save yourself. You can't bring any amount of righteousness before God that will satisfy uh, his righteous requirement. Uh, prophet says that all of our, our righteousness before God, Isaiah says all of our righteousness before God is like filthy rags, so on our best day, we're still not good enough. So in order to receive the gospel and the forgiveness that Jesus has secured for us on the cross, we have to humble ourselves and receive that, realizing I can do nothing to be righteous before God, but Jesus has done everything. And Jesus said, when it comes to, to bearing fruit, we can do nothing. So we have to foster intimacy. We have to abide in him. Now, I believe he issues a warning to us in verse six. 
Uh, it's an interesting statement, which is why I said what, what he refers to, the father's activity in verse three, uh, verse two, I'm sorry, says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In verse six, Jesus says, let me flip back over here. In verse six, Jesus gives a warning, a stern warning. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and are thrown into the fire. Now, one of the things I want to want to set straight is that the security of the believer has already been established. We see that from our passage last night in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So there's no question about the security of the believer. Jesus says earlier in John's gospel in in John 10, 27, uh, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says, my father who has also given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So in Christ, if you're trusting in the gospel, if you're following Jesus in him, you are safe and secure. That's good news, right? So I don't have to fear messing up in such a way that, oh my goodness, I've lost it. I've lost eternity because I've messed it up. Jesus is the initiator. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work, not you who started this journey, you who began a good work, but he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So our salvation is a work of God, 100%. But But Jesus says in verse six that if anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and he withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. One of the most sobering passages for me, and I think uh, for the last 20, 25 years in my life has been Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. I remember reading this very, very early in my faith journey, very, very early in my discipleship. Uh, and and there's still a, it brings a sense of sobriety in my heart when I read this because I want to I want to to prove essentially I want to I want to discern in my heart I want I don't want to be one of the people that Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter seven if you have your Bibles turn to Matthew chapter seven verse twenty one Jesus says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, as we talk about fostering intimacy, the implication of being in an intimate relationship with a person is that you know them, right? So as we talk about fostering intimacy with Jesus, that means we're pressing into our relationship with him. We're getting to know him more. We're learning more about who he is and what he has done on our behalf, what he has declared about us. We are receiving that identity and living in it. But Jesus says here, they're going to be people who come to him and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff. Don't we get in? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, in verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. 
And I think in light of this passage that we're studying this morning, John 15, the will of the Father is that we bear fruit. That we manifest the life and the character of Christ in the world that is. And I think that should begin to equate into it, into other people coming into relationship with him. If we're not bearing that fruit, it's not that you're prophesying. It's not that you're casting out demons. It's not that you're doing these many mighty works. If you're not bearing fruit, then it brings into question if you're, if you're in proximity to Christ or if you're actually in Christ. And Jesus says, if you're not in me, if you... Don't abide. You're thrown away like a branch and you're withered. So it's not enough to be in community with God's people. It's not enough to show up in the gathering. It's not enough to do the things that God's people are doing. But until we come to a place of humbling ourselves and accepting what Jesus did for us on the cross and allowing that to radically transform our heart, which completely changes the, tra- the trajectory of our eternity. Until we come to that place, we cannot abide in him. Jesus says, abide. And it's an invitation. If you abide in me and I in you. If you don't, you can't do anything. Because it's a branch. If it doesn't abide, it can't produce any fruit. So for me, that's a, that's a sobering warning. But again, I think bearing fruit is evidential of our discipleship and the lack thereof is evidential perhaps that we're not in Christ. One of the things that we're admonished to do in the scriptures as believers, as members of the household of faith um, is to, to check fruit. Like we don't judge the world outside. We don't, we're not looking for fruit from those who are outside of Christ. But as we are in relationship with one another, as we are journeying with one another, as we're digging into each other's lives, and of course, in a positive way, I'm not like looking for dirt. Uh, but as, we're, as we're, we're affirming the evidences of grace in each other's life, there should be concern in our hearts as brothers and sisters if we don't see fruit in the lives of people that we're journeying with who profess the name of Christ. This is why we never graduate and move beyond the gospel. We should be preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other on a daily basis. It's encouraging one another so that an evil and unbelieving heart isn't found in our midst. As we encourage one another in the gospel, there is opportunity in God's grace and his providence that people who might have been journeying with us for a long time, who, man, I thought if there would be anybody I'd see on the other side, it would be this guy, this gal. They come to trust in the gospel after hearing it over and over and over and over again in the context of community. My experience in ministry has been uh, as we have um, done meaningful membership uh, in my previous church staff experience. Uh, we had people who would come to our church and want to join our church. And we go through a similar process like we do here at the Hallows. And we'll sit down and we'll talk about our church. And at some point in the process, we want to sit down and we want to hear their testimony, their faith journey. And God in his goodness and his providence, as we uh, put structures and rhythms like that in the life of the church, there was an opportunity to hear people's story and, and to discover and help them press into what the gospel means. And there were times and times again where people began to trust in Jesus for the very first time in their life. And I mean people in their, in their 50s, in their 60s, 
embracing the gospel, coming to Jesus for the very first time because they were in a context in which we were able to share and articulate one another's stories and affirm or proclaim the truth of the gospel. And what they had been doing all their life is being in close proximity to the vine, but they had not yet come into relationship with Jesus himself. This is the importance of speaking the gospel to one another on a daily basis, which is why the gospel is preached in our gatherings. The gospel is preached as we dig into the scriptures in our missional communities, and we are to preach the gospel to one another as we are in close, closer relationship with one another as we talk about our DNAs. So the last thing I want to dive into is the invitation to abide in Christ is a call to know the scriptures. The invitation to abide in Christ is a call to know the scriptures. Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And this is like one of the most dangerous passages <laughs> almost in all the Bible. Because people just think, man, if, if, I, if, I, if I abide in Jesus, I can get whatever I want, right? This is not a quid pro quo kind of situation, y'all. It's not I abide and you give me what I want. What happens is the more intimately acquainted with the scriptures we are, the more and more conformed to the image we become and the more we pray in line or keeping with God's will and God's heart, which means what we ask for is what he wants already. So my prime example, stop me if you've heard it. Don't stop me because you all have probably heard it. My favorite food is red velvet cake. So uh, if you on any given day, which by all means, feel free to call me any given day and invite me to red velvet cake. But if you invite me to eat red velvet cake, hey, let's go get some red velvet cake. Uh, Cupcake Royale has some great red velvet cupcakes, by the way. Uh, I love red velvet cake. So it is, it is like that. I, I desire it. That's one of the desires of my heart. Probably should desire more earnest things, but I, I desire red velvet cake. So if you call me up and say, Brian, would you like to go get some red velvet cake? I'm like, yes, I'm all over that. Now, if you call me up and you want to get a different kind of cake, I might have to think through that. You might have to convince me a little bit, but there's no question. If you want to hang out with me, invite me to get red velvet cake and we'll go hang out and we'll eat some red velvet cake. <laughs> or coffee, says my wife. <laughs> Now, here's the point. As we hang out and becomes friend, become friends, no matter how much you don't like red velvet cake, as we hang out and you know that's a desire of my heart, as we grow in relationship with one another, we are delighting in one another. Uh, the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Doesn't mean you hang out with him to get what you want, but the more you hang out with Jesus, the more we hang out with one another, we delight in relationship with one another. And so we begin to like what our friends like. Their desires gradually become our desires. Like you might not care about red velvet cake, but if you think I'm a cool guy, you like hanging out with Bryant, then hey, let's go get some red velvet cake. Red velvet cake. I don't even care. But maybe a year from now, red velvet cake is your favorite cake. <laughs> so we've been delighting in relationship. Now here's, here's the thing. As we delight ourselves in the Lord, as we abide in Jesus, as we become intimately acquainted with his words and they abide in us, we can begin to ask the father for whatever we want. And it's not just that I want what I want, but because you have been abiding in him, he has been transforming our heart. Our desires have become his desires. 
And so the things that I ask him for, they're not in conflict. They're not contrary to his will. They're not contrary to his desire. They are in direct line with what he wants already. And Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. But it predicates upon abiding in him and his words abiding in us. If his words aren't abiding in us, we can't ask whatever we wish and have confidence that we'll get it because our heart's desires are wicked. They're wrecked. They're contrary to what God wants. But as his words abide in us, they will transform our heart. Listen to this. Another theologian says, mutual indwelling involves more than obedience. It also entails a growing absorption of Jesus's teaching in one's understanding and life practice that issues in the bearing of much fruit in one's own character, one's relationship with other believers, and the outreach to those outside the faith. Because of this growing conformity to Jesus's teaching, obedient believers will be effective in their prayers since this will be uttered in accordance with God's will. The more intimately acquainted I am with the scriptures, the more my heart is conformed to the image of Christ. The more I desire what he desires, the more my priorities are kingdom priorities. So the invitation to abide in Christ is a call to know the scriptures. I think this is where the spiritual disciplines aid us. Uh, Over the years, there have been a couple of books that have been written that I found helpful. Uh, I brought one because the other two are in my office in West Seattle, and I wasn't there much this week. Uh, But one that you might be familiar with uh, is Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It's it's a classic. I think it's maybe in its 25th or 30th uh, year edition. Uh, Another well-known book is uh, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. Uh, And another that I brought with me today, because this one was at home, uh, is entitled uh, Habits of Grace by David Mathis. Uh, One thing about the spiritual disciplines is that they are always pressing us into the word. We can't know God apart from the word, right? So if we're going to foster intimacy, if we're going to grow in close relationship with him, we have got to come to the word. And so pivotal spiritual disciplines that will aid us in knowing the scriptures would be like Bible reading. Bible reading, like having a Bible reading plan, an actual plan of how you will read through the scriptures, whether it be reading through the New Testament, uh, the Bible in its, its, in its entirety, uh, or reading with some sense of regularity, having a, a Bible reading and a time in which you will read the Bible will aid you in familiarizing yourself and your heart with the scriptures, because an invitation to abide in Christ is also a call to know the scriptures. So we need to be reading the Bible personally, But I think we also need to be reading the Bible in community, which is where our missional communities and our DNAs come in. We don't need to just get together and hang out and be friends and have a good time. We should do that. But we've got to be steeping ourselves in the scriptures. We've got to be speaking the words of Christ to one another. We've got to be encouraging one another with the truth, reading the scriptures together. I think I shared last year at a retreat uh, that in one of my discipling relationships with some teenagers, uh, one of the things that we did is went through a Bible reading plan together. And in doing so, we had these uh, one sit read sessions. So we were reading independently, but then we would come together once a quarter and we would read these large chunks of scripture together. And uh, one of those one sit reads was Deuteronomy. I think there's like 34 chapters in Deuteronomy. Uh, that was like an eight hour endeavor where we didn't, we didn't discuss the scriptures. We just took turns reading through the passage. And it was one of the most unique, but also richest experiences I've had because we just read the Bible together. 
God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. All we need to do is open the scriptures and read them together, and Christ will do his work in and through us. Speak the word to one another. Let's dive into, let's dissect it. Let's see what it means and apply it to our lives. But it is also enough to open the Bible and read the scriptures corporately. So be reading the Bible personally, but also be reading the Bible in community. Uh, another spiritual discipline that I think will aid us uh, in knowing the scripture is that of scripture memorization. Psalm 119.11 says, your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, as we abide in Christ, we want to keep his commandments. Well, as we internalize the scriptures, as we memorize them, uh, they will guard us so that we are walking in step with his will and with his purposes. And then lastly, I think scripture meditation filling our minds with the truth. Eastern meditation is all about clearing your mind. Like, I want to empty myself. Well, biblical uh, meditation is all about filling our hearts and our minds with the truth. And as we do that, God will bring about a sense of, of newness in our hearts and our desires, conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus so that intimacy is fostered. We begin to abide, and in abiding, we're able to bear fruit, that fruit that God desires, which is seeing the likeness and the image of Christ in us and perpetuated all throughout the world as we make disciples of others. As we foster intimacy with Christ, we become more like him and we grow in the confidence of who he has declared us to be. And we know who he's declared us to be because we are in the word and we see it clearly. So when we are making disciples, this is our process. We help people understand that God is interested in our spiritual growth and progress. Christ has made it possible. He has given gifts to enable that, enable our spiritual growth and progress, to enable us to, to foster intimacy. And he has given us the means to do that, which I think ultimately and clearly is his word. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love, uh, that you have made us aware of that through the scriptures and through Christ, you have made it possible for us to, to live the life that you intended for us to live. By the power of your spirit, you enable us to bear fruit, which is to manifest the life and the, the character of Christ uh, and also use that as the means to, to bring other people into your kingdom, bring people into relationship with you. So God, as we respond in these next few moments, uh, we pray that you would prompt our heart to be intentional, uh, to press into relationship with one another. May we leave this weekend uh, clear uh, in the areas that we, we lack community and deep discipleship, deep discipling relationships where, in which we can uh, affirm the truth and encourage the truth uh, in the lives of one another. And ultimately, that we would just lay everything down. We would surrender it all to you, Jesus. For those of us who are, may still be in a place of struggling to embrace the gospel, our pride perhaps is in the way. I pray that you would, you would break down that, that prideful wall and help us come to a place where we are embracing the gospel, seeing our need for forgiveness, our need for rescue, our need for reconciliation, and seeing that Jesus has made that possible. He has accomplished that through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And as we embrace the gospel, perhaps for the first time or for the, the umpteenth time, God, would you help us to abide that we might bear fruit and bring you glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.